Hi, everybody. I'm Sheldon Fetty. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 17th of 1996, and for that, I'm absolutely grateful. I'm, uh, I'm, the, I'm the baby here. I am speaking with, uh, on the same roster of some of my heroes, guys that I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, gals I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous, listening to their CDs and their tapes. And uh, uh, it is an absolute honor and a privilege. Uh, it feels a little uncomfortable, too, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're sharing your experience and strength and hope with, 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 with a program of recovery in front of the people who you revere in Alcoholics Anonymous. It, uh, what's worse, though, is there's a picture of Dr. Bob next to me. <laughs> and he's got a look on his face of, what on earth? <laughs> what, what have they done? I just want to know what the people at table number four have done to piss off Bill. <laughs> so we, uh, uh, we've, been, we've, been, we've been hearing since last night and, and today some amazing talks on, uh, on steps one, two, and three, and, and, and seeing a beautiful, descript- a beautiful description of alcoholism from someone that claims they don't have it. But you know, I, 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 I'm new and I sit in a room like this, or I sit in my home group, or I sit with my sponsor, or I sit with the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hear these things that we've heard so far this weekend. I hear this stuff that Joe said so beautifully about powerlessness and about, Sheldon, quite frankly, you are, I love the word the book uses, doomed, right? It just, it just you're doomed. I mean, it's, it's over, right? You're doomed. And you need to find God. You need to somehow find this spiritual uh, light, this, this, the, the spark, right, that we heard about, that, that, that will connect you uh, so you can get and stay sober. And I'm the guy in the book that when I hear about alcoholism and I hear that you suffer like I suffer from and I, I hear guys like Joe and I go, yeah, that's me. I have that. And I get a little hope and I feel a little bit like, yeah, you know, I have that too. Finally, someone that understands. And then you say, and God is the answer. And I'm not very excited. (laughs) If If you ask people in Alcoholics Anonymous who are sober a few years that seem like they have the light on, that seem like they're getting somewhere, that seem like they have what you want, if you say to them, you know, how are you sober? How do you, if you feel like Joe felt and you feel like I feel, how is it that you're able to stay sober? They will give you the party line. I don't know where we learned the party line. It, like it could be written on, maybe they pass out cards at the good meetings where they give you the, right? I am sober today by the grace of God. I'm sober today by the power that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous that allows me to stay sober one day at a time. I would like to thank God for AA, and I would like to thank AA for God. And I don't mean to goof on that. It's the truth, right? It's the truth in my life. I am sober today because I found a power greater than myself that enables me to stay sober one day at a time. And that power is coming to my life in an amazing and remarkable way. Like, like uh, Clint Hodges used to say, he'd say that on, uh, using my sobriety date on July, 17, July 16th of 1996, I was a hopeless, hope to die drunk. And on July 17th, I haven't taken a drink since. And that is sudden and profound. And it is only by the power of a God that is bigger 
bigger and more powerful than anything I could imagine that something like that would be possible. But, <laughs> if that was true, why do I need the rest of the steps? I mean, I just admitted I was Paul's over alcohol. I just admitted that, 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 that I'm willing to believe, and I love that, willing to, I don't believe, I don't believe, but I'm willing to believe. It's probably crap, but maybe, perhaps. <laughs> um, the possibly there might be a God, maybe. Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> right? There might be. It's possible. Okay, I'm willing. And I've said the prayer. I've pr I'm prayed up now. So now I've got this God. Now me and So why do I need step four? Because you don't find God in step three. If you could find God in step three, you wouldn't need to do step four. Step four, quite frankly, sucks. We're going to talk about it. It sucks. <laughs> right? And step, it does. And step five, is, it can be embarrassing if you live like I live, right? I mean, your step five might not be embarrassing, but I've done some crap, quite frankly, that I wasn't going to tell nobody about, right? Six and seven, I don't understand. Scott's going to talk about eight and nine. They're expensive. Right? Right? <laughs> So I don't want to do them either, quite frankly, because I don't have any money. And, you know, Deb's going to talk about 10 and 11. They go with 6 and 7. I don't understand them either. Bob's going to talk about 12. Newcomers smell. I'm not interested. <laughs> right? So if, I'm gonna, if, I, if God is what keeps me sober, right, I should be able to do 1, 2, 3 and stay sober, and then that should be good. But unfortunately, that's not my experience. I'm the guy that comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, I think I've done step one, I think I've done step two, I think I've done step three, and I drink. And I do one, two, three, drink. One, two, three, drink. And I don't know why. I mean, I, I've tried, it gets to the point at the end when my end stage alcoholism where I know God's the answer. I love what Larsen said, I know God's the answer. I get it, God's the answer. I get it, I have tried, I really have. I have tried to have God come into my life, but God doesn't come into my life. It sounds to me, ah, I wish, I wish that I was, I love that so stupid that I could believe something like that, right? Because smart guys like me can't believe something like that. It sounds hokey, right? I mean, if God, my mom used to tell me that, that, that and I, I love my mom, but her favorite thing was that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's for the great unwashed. It doesn't mean anything. And that's how I start to feel about God when I'm new. And I've tried God. I remember this guy one time, uh, a guy I worked with. He was a, a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. A um, little bit misguided. He was very passionate about his brand of faith. And so he tried to give me at the same time AA and his brand of faith, which really doesn't work. It's perfectly wonderful if you're lit up by both, but you should try and talk about one at some time and others at other time. And he was a little misguided and he talked about both at the same time. So he gives me a big book, tells me to read it, and then gives me what he called the sinner's prayer. And it turns out there were lots of sinner's prayers. This is his version of the sinner's prayer. And he says, if you identify with what you see in the book, then you should pray the sinner's prayer. And if you will pray the sinner's prayer like you really mean it, and that's the key. You have to really mean it. If you will pray this in his prayer like you really mean it, then God will come into your life in a wonderful and miraculous way, and you won't need to drink no more. And at this point, I'll try anything. So I read the big book, and there I am in the page of the big book. I'm the guy that can't quit drinking, even if he wants to. I'm the guy that's breaking the hearts of everybody in my life. I'm the guy that is restless, irritable, and discontent. I am in bondage of self. I am that guy. So, but a few days later, within a week or two later, 
I'm having one of my episodes. I have crying episodes. I am, I am publicly, I try to put on a brave face, but privately I'm broken and I'm weepy and I'm disgusted at myself and I hate me. And my biggest regret is that I don't have the nerve to do the right thing, which would kill myself. And I'm jealous of these people that, I'm, you know, I don't believe that suicide's the coward's way out because I'm a coward. I don't even have the nerve to do that. And I'm broken and I'm in the shower and I start weeping and I'm, I'm just, des I'm, I'm desperate. And I get out of the shower and uh, I grab this piece of paper that this guy had written this prayer on and I get on my knees. You can picture the scene. If you do, picture me clothed. It's a better picture. <laughs> But, but I am naked, and I'm, 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 water is dripping off me, and I'm holding this piece of paper, and the ink's getting blurry, and I say the prayer. And I mean it. I'm telling you, I mean it. And when I'm done, now what? No angels, no harps, no music, no clean wind blowing through as if I'm on a freaking mountaintop here, right? <laughs> Just me having said a prayer, feeling foolish one more time. And I get to Alcoholics Anonymous and you guys tell me God's the answer and I wish that God could be the answer, but I am blocked from any such power. I am blocked from any such power. I don't know what the problem is, but I can't reach that. And so I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm afraid that I'm gonna drink again. I loved what, well, I, I think it may have been Joe, one of the guys shared about how you know you're gonna, I knew I was gonna drink again. I knew I was, I was, it was just a matter of time before I drank again and I got with my sponsor and I got very lucky to get with the group of guys that I got with. I knew that God was the answer, but I was blocked and I couldn't do what I've been taught is break through the God barrier. I couldn't, I love what the stuff that William James uh, uh, was talking about. Thank you, John, for your presentation because I tried these uh, institutional type religions and I find myself feeling like a fake, feeling like a fraud in a big empty room with a bunch of people who some of which I'm sure are fakes and frauds and others I'm, I'm secretly envious of because they seem to have plugged into something that I can't seem to plug into. And I've done one and I've done two and I've done three and here I am drinking again and I don't know why. And my sponsor said, I told him, I said, I've done one, two, three. And if you don't got nothing else, I may as well go drink now. And I'm about 10 or 12 days sober, and he says, let's open up the book on page 63. Because if you think you've done step three, let's look at what it says next. And it says, next we launched. Next we launched. And you can't launch slowly. When you think of launch, you think of... I mean, the slowest you could launch would be 10. Nine. <laughs> I mean, you count backwards slowly, but once you got to launch, you're launching, because launch is a pretty launch, right? <laughs> next, we launch. Next, next. When? Next. Now? Next. Are you done? Did you do the prayer? You did the prayer? Good. Next. We're going to launch. Let's launch. <laughs> On a course of vigorous action, so we're going to do some stuff, which is good for me. 
Because I'm a pragmatic guy. I can't, this sit around thinking about God stuff makes me nuts. I, I am the guy, I do this with everything in my life. I don't just do it with God, I do this with everything in my life. I love what, uh, someone mentioned Dr. Paul earlier. Polly mentioned Dr. Paul. I love that magnifying mind. I whip out the magnifying glass on absolutely everything. And my magnifying glass briefly looks at the good things and eventually concentrates only on the bad things. Only on the bad things. I'm the guy that can pull out his magnifying glass, glass on, on my life. And my life, and if you're new, my life is very good. And I know you're happy for me. I, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I have a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful, great career. I have a lovely home, a wonderful son. And if I was to go home tonight and sit and think about my life, I'd sit in a hotel room and think about my wonderful life, I would be painfully aware of my wife's cellulite, my son's bad attitude, the fact that I work too many hours and the house is too goddamn small. And that would, I have never spiraled up, and, right? right? I, just, I just don't. I never end up giggling about how good my life is, right? I just... I'm just, I'm the depressive type, I spiral. And so when I think about God, I'm the guy that, you know, after thinking about, you know, I start out with butterflies and rainbows, right? And then realize he's a moron when I discover the duck-billed platypus, right? And then end with pain and people suffering and realize that if God exists, he ain't the kind of person I want to hang around with anyway. So I'm glad it's not about thinking about God, that it's a pragmatic program of action, vigorous action, the first step of which is a house cleaning. You know, I said to a guy, I remember when I was very new, and you may have heard this, I said to a guy who was very new, I can't do step three, I don't really believe in God. And he says to me, which you may have heard this, that step three, you're not turning nothing over to nobody, you're simply making a decision, right? And then he whips out his, his, his trusty old-timer line, he says, you know, if there were two frogs on a log... <laughs> and one frog decided to jump off, how many frogs would be on the log? And I said, well, one. He goes, no, Punky. There'd still be two frogs on the log because it was simply a decision, right? <laughs> right? Well, you know, uh, 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 in a little while, we're going to hear about step uh, six and seven, which I believe if the frog ever took six and seven, there'd be a splash, right? That's the frog... The frog packs his, decides in three, packs his suitcase in four and five, goes swimming in six and seven. So this journey that we're going to talk about now is this journey from deciding that maybe I could perhaps turn my life over maybe to a God that I think might probably not, but possibly exist. But I'm going to say the prayer anyway because it's the only way to get my sponsor to shut up, right? <laughs> what I don't know is the next thing he's going to do is say write a list, which is really annoying, but he did anyway and I did anyway. But... But I'm going to end up with this journey from three to six is what four and five, it turns out, is going to be for me. And it's a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Um, uh, though our decision, and this is read earlier, it's beautiful, though our decision was vital and crucial, vital, necessary for, for life, like vital signs, like your heartbeat and your pulse, your blood pressure, crucial, incredibly important. could have little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking me. I knew I was blocked. I didn't know there was a way to get unblocked. You mean there's a way to get unblocked? I know I'm blocked. I, have, I think I might have tried to get close to God. I think. But it feels like a one-way deal. It feels like I talk to God, I pray to God, and I don't feel nothing back. I don't know that I'm blocked and that you have a way to unblock me. 
It could have little permanent effect. You know, we lie to each other in AA. We do this for the newcomers. You know, we say one day at a time. It is one day at a time. I mean, listen, I can't stay sober today on yesterday's work, and I'm going to worry about not drinking today. And if I make it to bed tonight without having a drink, I'll be a winner, and tomorrow I'll try not to drink again tomorrow. But I am going to do that one day at a time, hopefully, for the grace of God, permanently. Because unless you can promise me permanent relief from what's killing me, I ain't interested. I can do, I cannot drink today, right? I'll kill someone and I'll drink tomorrow, but I, you know, I've, we've all done that, right? We've all, God damn it, right? But I'm looking for some permanent effect. And here's where the book starts to promise me that there is permanency in my one day at a time program to stay sober. It can have little permanent effect unless it once fall by a strange face, weird things that block me. A liquor was but a symptom. I knew that. I knew that intuitively. I knew that what was wrong with me was sobriety. What was wrong with me? You kept telling, not you, but they kept telling me, my problem is that I drink too much. And it looks like I drink too much. They kept telling me my problem is that I drink too much. It looks like that. It doesn't look like you drink too much. Because the only time you're in trouble is right after you got done drinking. Right? Right? But to me, boy, it feels like there is something else going on. What is wrong with me is the thing that drives me back to drinking. You know, my sponsor says to me one time, he says, you know, you, you're worried about your life not being manageable when you drink, and you keep talking about your unmanageable life when you drink. You've got all these things about when you were drinking, what you did. He goes, do you know, every, have you ever relapsed? I said, well, yeah, I'm a relapser. <laughs> I, I would I'm get sober to get loaded, to 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 get sober to get loaded, and then I'll go to bed and do the next day the next day, right? Because I'll do that. I'll get sober three times in a day. I mean, I'm just that guy. I'm never doing this again. All right? So, yeah, I've relapsed. He said, what did every relapse you ever have have in common? I don't know. What do you mean? Well, did you lose a job at every relapse? Well, some of them, not all of them. Did you get in a fight with her at every relapse? Sometimes not all of them. Did you get into? I mean, what did every single re, every single time you drank again? What did every one of them have in common? Oh, I don't know. The minute you made the decision, you were stone cold sober. Huh. The minute I made it hundreds of times. Alcohol is but a symptom. What is wrong with me is what I am. What drives me to pick up again. That is what is wrong with me, and that is what I need to find relief from. Therefore, we started our personal inventory. This was the first step. Uh, this, is, this was step four. I've never done a personal. I've done your inventory. <laughs> I'm, good. I'm good at inventory, boy. <laughs> I know what you did, when you did it, who you did it with, why you did it, what you were thinking when you did it, how much it hurt, and what I'm going to do to get you back for what you did. Boy, I'm good at inventory. I never did a personal one. <laughs> the first step was any, any busy. So, so this is a fact-finding. It says this is a, a fact-finding and fact-facing process. I'm going to do an inventory to find stuff out about myself, stuff that I, I don't know. I'm going to try and discover some new information. I'm going to try and discover the truth about uh, 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 the stock and trade. And this is why... When I do an inventory, I, I hopefully do it the way the book lays out. There are lots of inventories. But if I do an inventory that is just my life story, if this, if we, you know, it says in, in, in the uh, portion about step five, it says told some of the whole life story. And I think that's where we maybe get a little off track sometimes in what an inventory is. But if I have an inventory about, you know, 
that is just my story. Sheldon, you know, I was born at a very early age, blah, 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 blah. And if I have the, I, there's no new information there. An inventory for it to be vital and for it to be life-changing needs to have new information. It's fact-finding. It's, it's, we're going to search. And fact-facing, it's going to be fearless. And it's going to be an effort to discover the truth. One, one object is to, is to disclose damaged and unsaleable goods. This is a business inventory. And me, what, is a, what are my damaged and unsaleable goods? What is it that the book has been telling me is, is wrong with me? I am in the bondage of self. How I feel, I love when Don was talking about that, how I feel and what I think are the most important driving things to me. I am, I am wrapped up and trapped with what I think you think of me, what I think you said about me, what I think you're doing to me, how I should feel, whether or not I look good, whether or not I'm feeling right, whether or not I'm on the right, whether or not I'm being judged appropriately by you. I never feel like I fit in the world because I am in constant judgment of the world and the way that the world seems to be to me. All that stuff in, in 60 through 63 where I am, I am the actor that wants to run the whole show. This is the stuff that's killing me. It's driving me. My attitudes and opinions, you know, in a spiritual experience where it talks about our attitudes and opinions have to be completely redesigned, an upheaval, a complete remaking of the way that I look in the world. Clancy was, somebody mentioned Clancy's disease of perception, the way that I see the world and my place in it. I am in bondage of the, God relieve me of the bondage of self. We better look at self if we're going to be relieved from it. We should take a minute and see in my life, not in theory, right? Not some teary-eyed conversation with my friends after the meeting, but in theory, really, where is self? We search, first, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure, being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us. I, I, if I've done 60 through 63... Right? If I've come to believe in, those, in the ABCs, then surely I'm asking God to relieve me of the bondage of self. We've got to figure out where self affects me and how am I torn up by self. Being convinced that self manifests in various ways is one of the We considered its common manifestations. Resentment was the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Than anything else? Than anything else. Destroys more alcoholics than alcohol. You know, when I do something crazy and nuts, uh, I'm that angry and that wound up. All the booze does is take the edge off the inhibitions. It lets me say and do and act in the ways that I'm saying and doing and acting, but it's the resentment and the anger and the twisted version of self inside of me that is driving me to do those crazy things that I do when I'm drinking. And that is evidenced by anyone that's ever had any length of sobriety and behaved like a crazy person, right? The only thing that's different when I'm drinking to when I'm sober is the inhibitions aren't there because the alcohol reduces the inhibitions, but I'm still driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, and self-pity. I'm still in bondage of self. Resentment is the number one offender. From its stem, all forms of spiritual disease. We've not only been mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. That kind of rubs me the wrong way, right? Because it sounds, 
I'm, I'm one of the guys that, that uh, I, and I love this, William James is preaching at when he says, I'm going to use the word religious, and don't let it bother you. I'm the guy that it bothers, right? I got I, I to tell you, right, I'm, 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 uh, um, uh, I was born into an atheist Jewish home. What that means is that we're, we're Jewish, but we know we're wrong. We know that the only people on the planet more wrong than us are our crazy Christian neighbors. Those people have completely lost their minds. We're wrong, they're more wrong. So this is me. This is me at this conference, right, uh, uh, last night, right, preparing to be Captain Spiritual from the podium today. And John starts playing the, the first slide, and I don't know yet that it's William James. I don't know. And it's this guy, and he mentions the J word. Right? And Jesus was invoked in a spiritual group, right? Which, right? I get, I get, I get bothered, right? Right? Because I'm that guy, right? So I'm, so I'm sick, right? So, so when he says spiritual disease, I think he means the religious variety, right? And somebody says to me, no, no, no. Sick of spirit. You know that thing inside you? That life force, that light that's you, the thing that's you, the you that's you. The you that when you think of you, the you that's behind the control panel behind your eyes. You know behind your eyes, you got the desk with the screens and there's a guy really pulling the levers, right? right that, that guy, the spirit, right? right? Yeah, we all got that guy, right? Mine's much better looking than, than he's taller. With dark hair. Anyway, right but, right, right, but but that guy, right? I'm that guy is sick, sickened of spirit. Spiritual maladies over. When we straighten out spiritually, when the spiritual maladies overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. There's a great, uh, there's a lot of great things outside of AA that are spiritual in nature, um, uh, and and one of the things that I, I a great movie of all things, uh, uh, what the bleep do we know? Great movie, uh, and in that movie. Uh, there's a, a reference to a guy called Dr. Emoto, who's this uh, great Japanese spiritualist. And, and in the movie, the, what you've got is Dr. Emoto took some water from a spiritual spring, uh, a revered spiritual spring, and he put it in beakers. And he says to the beakers, he, he prays the love prayer over one beaker, and he, and he, he sends good vibes to it. And the other uh, beaker, he, he insults. You're bad water. You're all wet. You're a drip, right? He just kind of abuses the water. You're all washed up. Abu <laughs> if you're lucky, you'll get to be pee, right? I mean, he just kind of this kind of this kind of abuses the water, right? Just mean to the water, and then he uh, flash freezes it, right? And then he cuts it into thin slivers, and then under an electron microscope, microscope looks at the uh, way that the crystals of the ice are. And it's very neat, because in the water that we was mean to, they're angry, twisted-looking crystals, and in the water that was prayed over, they're beautiful like snowflakes. And it is a, it's clearly this demonstration of, of uh, what prayer and thought and, and energy uh, can do to an inanimate object uh, that is made up of, of, of crystalline uh, stuff. And this one guy who's trying to hit on the girl in the movie says, right, that's what I think, maybe he isn't, but I think he was hitting on her, right? Just because that's my mind. He was probably just being nice, but she was pretty, so I think he was hitting on her. Anyway, he's, <laughs> I would have been hitting on her. Anyway, he, said, he, said, he, says, he, says, he says to her, he says, 
Look at what the insults do to the water. And we're 90% water. What could bad thoughts and feelings do to us? And it just hit me that, that, that our spirit is sickened. And if we can straighten out spiritually, then the body can do what the body is supposed to do and heal us physically, emotionally, and mentally. Now, you know, I don't believe that that's true in all forms of disease. What is funny, though, I'm watching, have you ever watched uh, uh, commercials on the TV for the cancer institutes? But they talk about, and God bless, that's a, a horrible disease. They talk about treating the whole patient. They talk about treating the patient medically, uh, emotionally, and spiritually, and that all great medicine has sp a spiritual element to it. Because when we straighten out spiritually, we can straighten out mentally, physically, and with alcoholism, that is a spiritual disease. This is even more important and vital to us. So in dealing with resentments, what do we do? We set them on paper. We list the people, institutions, principles with whom we were. I tell you, I don't know about you, uh, but when I heard about the fourth step in meetings, I, what I heard was a couple of really weird things. The first thing I, the first thing, oh, you're going to do your fourth step? Ooh. Ooh. It's scary. You better do it right or you'll die. You better do it right or by Deb's tape of 10 and 11 is the truth, but I didn't hear that, right? You better do it right. Ooh, it's scary. And you hear all kinds of weird stuff about what a false step is and isn't, and there's stuff from treatment centers and, and stuff from other spread. People write books and just, oh, all this stuff, you know, and then you try and do it out of the 12 and 12, which has no directions in it. It's kind of cute, but it's Bill's experience. His experience is beautiful. There's no directions in it, so you can't, you can't, you go to a meeting and people talk about what it might be like to do a false step, and you, 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 you yeah, and you get very confused. And you get very confused. And so here are some clear-cut directions of exactly what to do, and it is so simple and so easy and so beautiful. And here's what it says. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We list the people, institutions, principles with whom we were angry. You know, we could write your false step for you if you're new. They're all the same. I know you think you're terminally unique, right? What Clancy says, we salute the flank flag of I'm different, right? But they're all the same, you know, name on the list. The first name's dad, then mom, then her or him, right? And then your boss, then your brother, and your sister, and then your previous her or him, then your previous boss, then your uncles and your aunts, and then your previous spouse, then your previous boss, and then everybody that's had any meaningless influence in your life all the way back as far as you can remember. My, my, I, had on my, I did my resentment list, I was 28 years old. I was 28 years old when I did my resentment list, and on my resentment list was the, not even a teacher, the lunch lady from, <laughs> the lunch lady from second grade. The lunch, I am that pathetic. I didn't like the way she made me eat lunch when I was five, and it was on the list. To this day, I don't like quiche. 
because she'd make me eat quiche and I didn't want quiche, but I had to eat quiche. You know what? I'm a grown-ass adult today. I don't eat lunch. <laughs> no quiche for me, boy. But anyway, she was on the list. All of them. They're all on the list. We asked ourselves why we were angry. Second column. Why? What they do? Second column. Why? What they do? We'll write a couple sentences about what they did. She made me eat quiche. In most cases, we found that it was our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relations, including sex, that were hurt or threatened. We were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we listed opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambition, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? For me to have a resentment against you, you must threaten, hurt, or interfere with me. Resentment comes from the fact that I think you have power over me and lack of power is my dilemma. I believe that if I can find power, I'll be fine. I can't find it. You stole it. You took it. I hate you. <laughs> it's really that simple. It's really that simple. Next to every one of those names on the page in 65 where Bill's written the example is fear. Notice the word fear later. We're going to talk about it's bracketed along every name. What is fear? Fear is that I'm terrified that you have power over me. Lack of power has always been my dilemma. It will always be my dilemma. Alcohol used to give me power. When alcohol stopped giving me power, I had to find a power by which I could live, and that power had to be bigger than me, obviously. I think if Bill could have, he would have written, duh, instead there, but obviously. It's a sentence in the book, obviously. Duh. It's a sentence, one word sentence. So we write the list and it looks like this list and, uh, and I got a list. And the first name on my list is my dad. I hate my dad, my dad is not a good guy, I hate him. I hate my dad. When I was two years old, my dad left, I hate my dad. When my dad left, we lived in a middle class uh, house in uh, the center of a very Jewish community in the north of England in a town called Leeds, it was safe, we were protected. I loved it, I was only two. I'm just guessing, I have no real memory. But it helps me hate my dad if I can have that memory, doesn't it, right? My sponsor said that to me, do you remember being two? No, but I remember what it must have felt like. You're laughing. This is my life. <laughs> oh, God help me. Oh. So I hated my dad. My dad left when I was two, and, and I hated a lot about that. He, uh, you know, divorce was not popular when he left. This is in 1970, 1971, and now it's kind of chic. It wasn't chic back then to be growing up in a... And my son has an experience now of, you know, he wants to have conversations about the shock he has that he's one of the few kids that his parents are married. Back then I had the opposite experience of being one of the few kids where his parents weren't. And I, but there were other divorced kids, and, uh, but those dads didn't leave town. Those dads stayed in town, and they were there on Sundays, and they were there on Wednesdays, and they were clearly part of the kid's life, and I hated my dad because my dad didn't do that. My dad left Leeds and he moved 
down to London, which is 200 miles away. And, uh, and, then, and back in 1970 in England, when your mom doesn't have a driver's license, 200 miles could be a million miles. But then he went, about two years later, he moved from London to Canada, Canada, Southern California, which is where I ended up when I was 16, which is why I, I left my English accent somewhere over the Atlantic and what happened to it. But, but that's why I ended up in Southern California and, and in Vegas is because my dad ended up in Southern, in Southern California. And I hated him because of the lie he told me, which was, son, I didn't leave you, I left your mom. And my position was, dad, if you'd have left mom and not left me, you'd have stayed in Leeds and I hate you. And that was, you know, and we, my, my spot, we, we talked about this, uh, uh, a lot. Let's just get through a couple more pages. To conclude, others were wrong. Was as far as most of us ever got. Well, of course, of course, others are wrong. Uh, 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 I, earlier on in the book, it says the only time I ever admitted that I was wrong was when I was quite sure others were more to blame. Right? I'm sorry I hit you, honey. But if you hadn't, right? Sorry I stole that, boss, but if you'd have paid me what I deserve. It's always that. I'm sorry I, but it's really your fault, and you suck. Right? <laughs> to conclude, others were wrong was as far as ever God, and, and this is why this is so important. It's plain that any life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness, and I was unhappy, and my life was futile. For I say to the extent that if we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, business resentment is infinitely great. We found that it is fatal. That if I don't find a way to, 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 to overcome this, to figure this out, it will kill me. It will kill me because of the most obvious reason. It will kill me because if I, if I can't unblock me from God, I will not stay sober. I must be willing to do this because if I don't, I will not stay sober. It says a few sentences down, we turn back to the list where it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And if you're not prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle, then you are, you are you're signing up to die. Because unless you can get free of this, you cannot get unblocked. And if I cannot get unblocked, I am sober today. By the grace of God, I found that Alcoholics Anonymous. I must get unblocked. I must or it will kill me. And that is the most important and obvious reason. There's another reason why I got to do this. And because there are people, and maybe you know one of them, there are people who can stay sober in agony. I'm not like that. I'm a coward. I'm a, I'm a pain relief junkie. If I hurt, I take something, right? I mean, God, but there are people, if you want what we have, kids, and you're willing to go, <laughs> and I don't want, if that's what being sober is, I'm not interested. I was scared that that's what sober was. I was scared that sober was going to be, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, God, I'm, no matter what, I'm not going to drink. Right? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be, I got to get free. So we're prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And I show up to my sponsor's house and I'm prepared. I'm willing, but I don't know how. I just don't know how. How do I let my dad off the hook? He ruined my life. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? That I don't seem to be able to have relationships with anybody because my dad left and I know they're going to leave too. I don't trust him. I don't like him and I don't trust him. And my mom, you know, we'll get to her, but she used to tell me all the time, you're just like your goddamn father, right? I mean, she told me, she, in one moment, she would say to me, oh, you're just like your dad. 
And the next minute she'd say, your father ruined my life, right? So what do I know? I know I'm a bum that's going to ruin a woman's life. So, you know, I may as well do, do no relationship for me, you know? I mean, everything. I hate him. I hate him. But I'm willing, I guess. <laughs> this was our cause. This was our cause. This is how. Oh, thank God there's a how. We realize that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. If you stop there, it's like, yeah, they're sick. And they're buttheads too, right? <laughs> Though we didn't like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. They, like ourselves, like ourselves, were sick too. Though we didn't like their symptoms. My sponsor says to me, Sheldon, when your dad and mom got married, what do you know about that? I said, well, not much. I mean, being married to my dad wasn't much of a topic of conversation my mom wanted to have, other than, you're just like him. I said, not much. He said, what do you know? I said, well, they got, the truth is, is that they got married uh, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to talk about my mom for a second first. Because my mom was, was an angry person. My mom would scream and yell a lot. My mom, you know, when I came home from school, it didn't matter uh, uh, what kind of behavior I had had. Uh, I could have been a good kid, uh, and she might have yelled at me. I'm guessing that because I was never a good kid, but I'm assuming I could have been a good kid. <laughs> But sometimes I'd come home and she'd be kind and loving, and other times I'd come home and she'd scream and yell, and my behavior had no bearing on the way that she treated me. And I hated her for that. It was embarrassing to bring people home because sometimes she'd make them a sandwich and sometimes she'd make them feel uncomfortable and you never knew which was gonna happen. And so I didn't, it was, it was she was, she would, uh, uh, she suffered from panic attacks. She uh, uh, would scream and yell, she was mean verbally, and it was very difficult growing up in, in the house with her. And. Uh, I, I, I didn't like it at all. Um, I got to tell you, um, my mom is now an active member of Al-Anon. And I am so grateful to the program of, of Al-Anon for what they have, difference they have made in my mom's life. And uh, I have the best relationship with my mom I have, I have ever had now. Um, it's not perfect, but it is, the, it is the best relationship that my mom and I have ever had. But I hated my mom. I hated my mom for the way she treated me. I hated the way she talked to me. I hated the way she treated me and my brother. I just hated my mom. And so my, my sponsor had given up on my dad because I made it real clear that I wasn't going to let him off the hook. He left. He's a son of a bitch. You know, I love that get new tools, right? I mean, I mean, he did the best he could with the tools he had, right? Your dad did the best he could for you with the tools he had at the time. And I want to say get new tools, right? Because I was two and you were an adult and I'm not interested in letting him off the hook. So we go to my mom and we talk about my mom's symptoms and the way she just... And, my sponsor, he says to me, do you think your mom was a nice, what was it like being your mom? Do you think your mom was, was mean by choice or do you think she was driven to it? I start to think about my mom and some of the experiences I had with my mom. I didn't like her symptoms or the way they disturbed us, but perhaps she was sick too. He said to me, you know, you're not a good, a bad guy trying to get good. You're a sick guy trying to get well. 
And you have a spiritual sickness, but you don't have the only kind of spiritual sickness. And I believe, and I, I believe that if you're a, a sick guy trying to get well, you've been driven by a hundred forms of stuff, and you probably behaved in ways which you perhaps are not, are not guilty for, driven by your disease. Now, don't get me wrong. We have a responsibility step, and I'm responsible for all of it, and, and Scott's going to talk about that later. But I've taken some actions and done some things driven by my alcoholism that I was unable to prevent myself from doing because I was driven. Is it possible that your mom was driven to treat you to behave the same way by her own demons? I think about my mom. I would catch her crying sometimes. I said, what are you crying for, Mom? And she'd say, I just feel so bad for the way I treat you boys. Today, she will, in her maudlin moments, tell me how much she regrets the way she treated me and my brother. And I've stopped trying to let her off the hook because she's not trying to justify it to me. She's just expressing her true regret. But she didn't want to treat us that way. She was driven by panic attacks and, and emotional disorders. She's a little bipolar. She had a lot of stuff going on. Not an alcoholic, never a drinker, which, you know, I've talked to some people in Al-Anon, geez, that might have given her a little relief. You know, if she could, if she, can you imagine, I, a friend of ours, Jack, says, can you imagine feeling like you feel an alcohol not working, right? And that may have been her experience, that she may have felt the way that I've sometimes felt, but booze didn't work for her, and she didn't have a way out, and she behaved that way. And, uh... You know, you know, it says we, we look as if they were sick too. And I want to look at sick people like I'm well. You know, oh, he's sick. Oh, 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 you poor thing. It's different if you're sick too. If I find out that you have cancer, I feel bad for you. You poor thing. It's terrible. I might even sneakily, in my most pathetic part of me, feel a little relieved that it's you, not me, because I don't want that, you poor thing. Oh, But if I got cancer and you got cancer, that's a whole different connection. Like they're sick too. I get my mom's spiritual sickness. I get that she was driven to do things that, and I don't immediately forgive my mom and let my mom off the hook, and we don't skip the road of de happy destiny together, but I don't need to get love and forgiveness immediately. What I need is understanding. From understanding can be born all of those wonderful emotions, and I get to understand my mom a little. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. At the same time, to the same degree, in the same way. As I let my mom off the hook, I get let off the hook. As I let her be okay with all her frailties and all her insecurities and all the things that's wrong with her, I also get let off the hook. Forgive us her trespasses as we forgive those. So I start to see my mom for who she is. This woman that, that has struggled and done her best and tried but has been driven and it was hard being her. And I tell you, I believe today with all my heart what Chamberlain says and some of our other great spiritual teachers say that they're doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can, but I couldn't believe that about my dad. I'm blocked about my dad, but I start to let my mom off the hook. And my sponsor says this to me. Do you think your mom got sick when your dad left? Or do you think she was sick when they got married? I don't know. Most powerful words in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know. Most expensive words in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know. You ever talk to a guy that's freshly back? I know, I know, I know, 
I know. How long does he stay? I don't know. <laughs> so I said, I don't know. First time in my life, I don't know. Tell me about your mom and dad. Well, my, my, my dad was, in, in, the, in, the, in the late 60s, England, uh, we weren't involved in the, in the Vietnam crisis, but we still had conscription because of the Second World War. The Second World War had an effect on Britain uh, deeper than the massive effect. It had a massive effect here, but uh, the, uh, the bombs were hitting London, and, and we know what that's like from September 11th, and, and it had a massive effect on Britain. And uh, so the conscription stayed 20 years after the war. My dad was, was sent off to the Air Force, and uh, before he left, they got married very quickly, as many people did when the military was separating couples. So they got married, but she was very young. She was 18, he was 24, and they got married, and... Uh, uh, they didn't know each other. They really didn't know each other. And they got married in that small Jewish community. And uh, he said, what do you think it was like for your dad when he figured out that your mom had some of these troubles that you got to experience living with your mom? I said, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think uh, would have happened if you were your dad? I don't know. I have a sneaking feeling that I would have married her because she was, a, my mom's a beautiful woman. She was a stunning, stunning 18-year-old girl. She was beautiful. And I think that I, I have made, I would have probably married her. And uh, when I came home and she was crazy and life was the way that I can only imagine that it must have been, I probably would have, uh, when he came home that day and she said that I'm pregnant with your older brother, with the firstborn, I'm the secondborn, I'm pregnant with the firstborn. If I was my dad, I probably would have left. What did your dad do? I don't know. My dad stayed. I mean, he stayed and uh, probably stayed as long as he could. My brother was about two years old, just out of diapers. Uh, maybe he would have left. I don't know. But then she got pregnant with me. And maybe he stayed as long as he could. Maybe he, maybe he stayed until he couldn't stay no more. Maybe he stayed. And when he left, when he left... If he would have stayed in that town, in that community, he would have had to defend his dignity by telling everybody she was crazy. Maybe the kindest thing he did was move to London, Canada, and then L.A. to get away from her so he could be the bastard and not have to defend his dignity so she could have hers. He could be the bad guy. She didn't have to be. Maybe he sacrificed his relationship with his mom with his dad, with his brothers, with his boys. Maybe he sacrificed all of that for her dignity. I don't know. I don't know. But I built my life on knowing what really happened when there is an equally powerful, more powerful story that is possible, and I don't know if it's true, but God damn it, it's possible. I built my life on knowing things I don't know. I love that. Came out of nowhere, hit my head, came out of my mouth. I'm that guy. I know shit I don't know. <laughs> and it is not the things that I don't know that will kill me. It's the things I'm absolutely certain about and wrong that will kill me. <laughs> and I'm absolutely certain about this. And, and, and for the first time, I don't know. What would you have done if you were your dad? What would you have done? 
16 years old, I went down to the government in, in our hometown. I wiped mud over my face. I took a backpack full of clothes, and I told them she kicked me out. I signed on the welfare rolls and became an emancipated adult at the age of 16 because I couldn't stand to live in her house anymore. What would I have done? I wouldn't have stayed for the second kid, I tell you that, if I'd have stayed for the first. I don't, I don't know what to, I don't, you know, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, this broken person who is, is built, is built his life on a series of things that he believes were bad, right? A series of things he believes are bad, resentments, judgments, anger. I hang my life on this hook in the wall of all this crap that I know happened to me. And in step four, I start to realize that perhaps none of it really happened. These resentments, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. I start to let my dad off the hook. Now, it may not matter to some people that at 28 years old, I started to have a relationship with my mother and father that I had never had. It matters to me. Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is, is uh, a place where families get put back together, sometimes directly in the Al-Anon family groups and the work that Al-Anon does and the way that the two groups cooperate with each other. But, but my mom is not an alcoholic. My dad is not an alcoholic. It was not their journey in recovery that healed our family. It was the realization through Alcoholics Anonymous that allowed me to not judge so harsh and to get some understanding of what it might have been like to be them that allowed that journey to begin. In, 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 uh, I made, I made amends to my dad. I'm going to touch this very briefly because it's very important. Uh, and I told him what I had thought with my sponsor. And I did this about eight years later. Eight years later, I had this conversation with my dad. I let my dad off the hook. We have this great relationship. He doesn't know why. And I explained to him what my sponsor had explained to me in step four. And uh, uh, he laughed at me. He said, that's not what happened at all. What, what, what do you mean? He goes, I was traveling a lot, and I met this pretty girl. And she had lots of money. Her, her brother was an actor, and she owned a bar, and it was exciting, so I left. If your mom was crazy, she went crazy after I left. She's a great girl. And you know what I knew? I knew the most powerful thing that you can ever know in Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew I didn't know. I knew I didn't know. Every resentment I've ever had has been based on the fact that I know. And God sends me postcards, Sheldon, you don't know crap. <laughs> Dear Sheldon, wrong again. <laughs> God. Uh, my, my dad is, I'm gonna tell you a story, a quick story, but my dad is still with us, but he's very sick. I got a call last April. Uh, that he, they gave him 30 days to live, and he just ain't ready to go. He's, he's hanging on like a trooper, and, but they gave him 30 days to live. And I had some resentment had reoccurred, uh, as it sometimes does. Some things had happened, and it's a long story, but I had justified my way back into being mad at my dad, and I get this phone call, and I have this emotional breakdown, and I go back to my sponsor, and we revisit this story, and, and I get peace again, but now I have to go talk to my dad to let him off the hook, and I want to share this with you because it's so important to me. I don't want to steal any of the eight and nine thunder, but I, I just want to share this story with you. Because I realize the truth by now. 
and that is that my dad couldn't get new tools. If he could have gotten new tools, he'd have got new tools. My dad really did the best he could with the tools that were at his command. And I wanted to tell him that. But I'm now 17 years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't want to hurt him, and I know what this would sound like. Dad, I love you with all my heart. It's not your fault that you weren't enough of a man. I forgive you. <laughs> If God would have made you enough of a man, you would have been more of a man, but you're not enough of a man. You needed new tools, didn't know where to get them. I forgive you. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to, I, I couldn't do it. So I thought about what to say to my dad, and I prayed about it, and I talked to my sponsor about it, and this was a difficult thing for me. And then God gave me the answer. And I went to my dad, and I thought that this trip was about me letting my dad finally off the hook forever. Finally doing this was our cause with my dad forever. And I went to him, and I thought it was about this. And I go to him, I want him to die at peace. As if I got anything to do with that, right? But I want him to, I, I, they gave him 30 days to live. He's dying. This is the last, the, I mean, I've, I've talked to him a thousand times since then. Every day we're on the phone, every couple of days we're on the phone. But this was a big deal, because they gave him this time to live. And I'm going to have, and I go, and this is what I said to him, Dad. I want you to know some of my favorite things about me. I want you to know one of my favorite things about me is my sense of humor. And you know my mom. I got my sense of humor from you. And I'm grateful that you were my dad. I made a very good living in the sales industry. And uh, my mom is not a salesman. My dad is a salesman. And dad, I'm grateful that you're my dad. I'm, I'm, and he's looking at me, I said, I want you to know how grateful I am that what made me was, was partly you. And there are things about me that are gifts from you that I would not have had had you not been my dad, and thank you. And I didn't want to make nothing up because he knew he'd left. He knew all the stuff he'd done. He knew that, you know, he wasn't there to He knew that. So I didn't want to lie to him, so I wanted to give him the truth. There are things about my nature that you gave me. I am like you in so many ways. So much so that I could be like you, not growing up in the same home as you. And, I'm, and I love those things about me. Thank you for being my dad. And he cried. And he took my hand. And he said to me, Sheldon, I don't have much of a spiritual idea. I don't know much about God. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if I'm going to get to come back and do this life again. But if I get to come back and do this life again, I hope I can be the kind of man you have become in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was healed. I tell you, the two-year-old little boy that felt abandoned by his father, at that moment, it was, it was good. I know that's not why we get sober. We get sober to stop drinking. But don't steal from yourself all of the other magic. The ma I love that, the magic that happens in the steps. I love that. Don't steal that from yourself. Referring to our list, we put out of our minds the wrongs others had done. We resolutely looked for our own mistakes. I spend my life looking for my part in what happens, and it's a mistake. Don't look for your part. 
Here's why. Here's the hole. Which one's the part? <laughs> Nobody thinking the big one. <laughs> huh? Huh? Here's the part. <laughs> Being sure that I might be wrong, I am certain that others are more to blame. So here's what I do. I put out of my mind the wrongs others had done. And I look only at my own mistakes. And I get free. And I get free. I get unblocked and I get to live in a world where God really might exist. Where God really might exist. And in fear, this word, God, I gotta, I got, I'm running out of time, i got to go fast. So, so, so now we come to fear, right? And what is fear? Every single one of my resentments is driven by fear. It is the evil and corroding thread whose the fabric of my existence is shot through with it. Right? I get afraid and then I get angry. That's what I do. Every resentment I've ever had is based on fear. It's based on the fact that I'm afraid I'm not going to get something I think I should get. I'm going to lose something I've already got. You're not going to respect me. You're not going to see me for the wonderful person that I think I am. Or worst of all, you're going to see me for the piece of garbage that I think I am, which would be a lot worse. And I am afraid. And I am afraid. And so what do I do with that fear? What do I do? I can't. Self-reliance, the book says, fails me. It goes far as it can, but it can't go far enough. And I can't go to the store and get new self-reliance tools, right? I'd like uh, some of that, some of that, and a little self-reliance, please. That'd be great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Perhaps there's a better way. We think so. <laughs> we hope so. There better be a better way. The way of trusting and relying upon God. A way of trusting and relying upon God. I love this James stuff. I'm you, 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 John. I like some others. You know that I had heard his name in the book. Obviously, I'm a, a little bit. I like I read the book occasionally. I'm a student of the book, right? Well, it's a good book. It's a good read, right? <laughs> So I'd come across his name from time to time, right? But, but I never knew how powerful he was of an influence. And this whole deal about uh, the, 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 industri- the, the institutional religion, which is, be- if you can get that, get it. The people that get that, it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. But you don't have to have that to get the, 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 the personal religion. And I've known people that have both, and they're the lucky ones. I've known people that only have the institutional religion, and it's kind of empty for them, and it's kind of a shame, right? It's kind of sad for them. But this personal religion, this idea of me really going to God because God's really the answer, because there really is no other answer, because I tried and... Right? You know where I ended up trying on my own? With you. Look at you. Right? You ended up with me, right? It's no, it's, we're no prizes, for God's sakes. But seriously, right? I mean, so I got nowhere else to go, so I go to God and I take this to God. And I was so weird that I thought so many strange spiritual things. They used to say this thing when I was newly sober. They don't say it much anymore, and I'm really glad. They used to say, when fear knocks, faith answers, and there's nobody there. Sounds great, unless you're me, right? Because I got a room full of faith. I, 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 don't, I don't only have faith, I have absolute certainty. I have evidence. I am, I'm telling you, you could not talk me out that there's a power greater than myself. God is real. But I'm often afraid. What does the book say? 
The book says that faith brings us courage. People who are unafraid don't need courage. They're not afraid. God does not remove my fear. God gives me the courage. I got this in a fortune cookie. For, isn't it great? Because, you know, I mentioned that I'm Jewish. And I don't know if you know this, but, uh, like, I'm married to an Italian, and, and Italian cultural food is, 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 is pasta. Jewish cultural food is Chinese food. <clears throat> so I'm having a cultural dinner. And I open the fortune cookie, and it says... Courage is the ability to do the right thing in spite of fear. Oh, I love that. I, lo I love that. Courage, the ability to do the right thing in spite of fear. I can be afraid and have faith. I can have God in my life and be afraid. And what God does is God allows me to walk through the fear. I can live with that. And if I don't do that and I don't rely upon God, you know what happens? Resentment. Where's the fear? You want you got a resentment you can't get over? Look for the fear. Where's the fear? Self-centered fear is the driving force of all resentment. Resentment is the muscle. But self-centered fear is the protein that feeds the muscle. And that is my experience. So I do the fear list. Sexual inventory. I, I get everything else. Why the sexual inventory? Right. Was Bill like, I mean, you know, I believe, and I don't know if this is true, but I believe when he wrote to the wives, he was wearing a wig and some of Lois's clothes. I mean, really, so, right? So, right? So, right? To the wives. Yeah, it's like heresy. That's why he's looking at me like that, because I'm talking about him that way, right? That's a bad deal. Right? Even Scott's looking at me like that, both of them, for crying out loud. Right? Right? But why the sexual inventory? I don't get why the sexual inventory. Why the sexual inventory? Because when I am the most vulnerable, I am the most likely for fear. And when I am the most afraid, I am the most likely for resentment. When the phone rings, when it's one of my guys, somebody talked about PMS this weekend, right? Pride, money, or sex, right? Pride, money, or sex. And pride, it's what's driving your pride? Is it the money or the sex, right? It's, it's, it's money or sex. Money phone calls happen during the daylight hours. <laughs> Three o'clock in the morning, do you know what she said? <laughs> we are driven more in that area. It is one area of our life where every other area of our life is affected. It is one area of our life where every area of our life is affected. And so we do a sexual inventory so we can see in clear, stark contrast what we're looking for here. What I'm finding here is because I don't believe it, so I'm looking for evidence of the bondage of self. My resentment, my list, my resentment, fear, and sexual inventory are a list of evidence for me to use to prove to myself that I am in fact in bondage of self. That that is really selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of my trouble. Unless you do an inventory, you can't see that. I mean, yeah, 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 I'm selfish. No, 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 no. Self-centered, like the world runs through me. And in the inventory process, I get to see it. And in the inventory process, I get to see it not only for the evidence for it, but for the craziness of it, for its destructiveness, for its destructiveness. So I write all this stuff down, and, uh, and then I got to share it with somebody. And then I got to share it with somebody. 
I, um, I don't want to do that, to be honest. I, I didn't really run the streets much, but the amount of time I ran the streets, I learned three important rules. Right? You know, in real estate, there's three rules of real estate, right? Location, location, location. There's three rules of the street. Deny, deny, deny. <laughs> right? right? No, it wasn't me. On video? No. It was, that guy, you're right. He does look like me. <laughs> wow, I could make that mistake too. <laughs> you ever watch that show, The First 48? Right? I love that show. It's one of my favorite shows. They get the guy in the room, and the good cup and the bad cup and the bad cup and the good cup and the good cup and the bad cup, right? And then they eventually they make him confess. And they slide a yellow notepad to him, right? Just like the one my sponsor slid to me. They may as well say, now along the top, write resentment, right? I mean, you know, and now you want me to share that stuff, right? Why the hell would I want to do that? We'll be more reconciled discussing ourselves with another person if we can see good reason why we should do so. The best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. You remember drinking? We've done a lot of work to this point. We might have started to forget drinking. The, the late, great Scott Redman used to say, keep it square business and above the horizon. And, and, and I, I love that when you say that. Square business, above the horizon. Alcohol is but a symptom, but it's the symptom that's going to kick my ass all over this world. So keep your eye on the symptom. Keep your eye on that. We may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to come to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives, trying to avoid this humbling experience. They turn to easier methods. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get that job, get that promotion. I'm going to, I'm going to join a church. I'm going to join a gym. I'm going to get a hobby. I'm going to, whatever it may be, I'm going to go find her. I'm going to throw myself in obsessively into my children's lives, whatever it might be, easier methods. I knew this guy, Chris. Chris was a guy that I sponsored. Uh, Chris was, it was actually, uh, at, he was sponsored by a couple of other guys in, in Vegas, and he was sponsored by my sponsor, um, um, uh, who I think, by the way, is the greatest AA member on the planet. Um, and if you don't think your sponsor is the greatest AA member on the planet, try taking some direction, you might change your mind. But anyway, <laughs> he, had been, he had been sponsored by, by my sponsor, Bob, and he was sponsored by our friend, Craig, and these guys are my heroes. And, and he'd gotten drunk when he'd sponsored them, and I'm, I get this guy to do a fifth step, and uh, I'm thinking, he's going to take a year cake. And he's going to thank Bob and Craig for all the things they tried to do to help him. But I'm the one that got him sober. <laughs> but Chris would come to me, and we did a fifth step, and he would come to me after we did the fifth step, and he would say to me, Sheldon, i got to talk to you, i got to talk to you. So what is it, Chris? And he'd go... Ah, forget it. And he turned around and walked away. He turned around and walked away. He could not remove the last piece of blockage, whatever that was. He was blocked. If you can't talk to God with skin, you can't talk to God without skin. He was blocked. And he did everything else. He persevered with the rest of the program. They wondered why they fell. This guy, the day he drank, picked up a new guy, took him with him to take a panel into detox, dropped off the new guy and went to the bar. Dropped off the new guy and went to the bar. Because unless God's in the mix, unless we're unblocked, all the rest of it is just activity. 
it's important activity, but it's just activity. So he took inventory all right, but he hung on to some of the worst items in stock. And then here's what I believe is the other reason. In step seven, when we hear about step seven, we're gonna hear about uh, uh, that journey to humility. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. But it doesn't tell us anywhere where we get humble. Now in the 12 and 12, it describes the journey of step six as a journey to humility. It does describe that in the 12 and 12. And I, my experience is that that is true. But the big book says that it begins here. It says that they thought they had only lost their egotism and fear. They, thought they, they only thought they had humbled themselves. They had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else their whole life story. Until we can uh, find a way to be clear with another human being, we can never be alone with God. We just, and we are, you hear that cliche? I hate cliches. Don't you hate cliches? I hate cliches, but the reason they become cliches is because they're always true. That's the reason that, that they become cliches is because they're always true. And that cliche, you're as sick as your secrets, is very true. Is very, very true. So how am I going to do a foot, fifth step? I got to do a fifth step. It says at the bottom of the page, we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long and happily in this world. And I want to live long and happily. I don't want to live long and miserably. I'd rather live, if I had to choose, short and happy, right? I mean, long and miserable is miserable. <laughs> so it says we searched our acquaintance for a closed-mouthed understanding friend. Why? Why a closed mouth understanding friend? Well, understanding's easy. You know, I, I've, been, I've made a lot of people angry and a lot of people are mean to me. And I want someone that's going to be understanding. I want someone that's going to be nice to me. Why closed mouth? Because I'm going to, for the first time in my life, bear my soul. And I've got to tell you that from Podiums of Alcoholics Anonymous and book studies, in, in different environments, everything that I've ever been ashamed of in my life, somewhere, some tapers got in, in his DVD, right? So he's on a, on a CD. Somewhere, some, somewhere, they've got that stuff. So uh, it's not because me sharing it with you, uh, I might be open-mouthed and I might hurt you by telling someone. It's because if I don't believe you're closed-mouthed, I won't be honest with you. So I need someone I can trust so I can be completely honest with you, not hold anything back so I don't have any secrets I'm going to be sick of. It's important to be able to keep a confidence that he fully understands and approve of what we are driving at, that he won't try to change our plan. That he won't try to change our plan. You know, in, in many uh, uh, religious uh, teachings, there are different ways to do these kind of inventories. Uh, I don't know much about the Catholic faith. My wife is Catholic, I, but there is a, a way to do inventory, the confession. You do the confession, and when you're done, there's a series of prayers you do, and it's beautiful. In the Jewish faith, we don't do confession. We have a period, a day, of, we do it once a year, a day of atonement, because we pay wholesale for everything. We don't pay retail. <laughs> so so, once, so once, a year, once a year, we do this thing, and we what we do is we take all of our sins and you're supposed to say some prayers over some breadcrumbs, put them in a river, and the river takes away uh, all of your sins. If you don't live near a river because Israel's got some desert in it, you find a goat and you pray over the breadcrumbs, you sprinkle the, groat, the breadcrumbs on the goat's head, you slap the goat's ass, the goat takes the... Which is good unless slapping goat's asses is one of your sins and it would be very difficult... <laughs> It's good to do all of that stuff, but you have to do AA as well. 
you have to do AA as well. Very, very quickly to finish up, um, our fears full from us. Here's, here's, here's the promises we talked about. Once we have taken the step with holding nothing, we're delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone in perfect peace and ease. Our fears full from us. We begin to fear the nearness of our Creator. If you're stuck in one, two, and three, and you're, you haven't done this work, and you're wondering why you don't feel connected to God, the first time that is promised to you is in the fifth step promises that you will feel the nearness of your Creator. That's where the relationship happens. Is here. When I came, before I came, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, when I was new, if I met you, I would judge you. I would decide if you were better than me or you were worse than me. And then I would know how to treat you based on whether I thought you were better than me or worse than me. Post step five on my good days, I'm able to see you what you are. Another one of God's kids trying to do his best. What my wife's sponsor calls just another bozo on the bus. And that is the gift of step five, that for the first time in my life, I joined the human race and became one of you. And I'm so grateful for my life and thank you for accepting me as one of you.